Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Uh, if you knew that the COVID-19 pandemic was coming several years before it happened, how do you think you would have lived differently over the last few years? If, if you kind of had a, a forewarning, like, hey, this is, this is actually going to take place, the whole world's going to go crazy, it's going to get turned upside down, how might have you changed some things in the way in which you lived? Ironically, there were actually some warnings ahead of time of what we've experienced over the last uh, 18 months or so. In fact, in the 2015 TED Talk, uh, which if you don't know what a TED Talk is, you're welcome. You can spend hours on the internet later looking up and watching great little talks on all sorts of different topics. But in a 2015 TED Talk, uh, Bill Gates warned us about what could potentially happen uh, in a global pandemic. In that talk, he was looking back at evidence from what had happened with the Ebola crisis and essentially said that the world was not quite prepared if there was a moment where a deadly virus would actually um, be more transferable, if it was airborne or if it was moved. And he warned in that talk that we needed to be prepared potentially for one day if there ever was a global epidemic. He encouraged us in that thing to prepare like we would for war, that we needed research facilities and testing procedures and better infrastructure if we we're going to handle a crisis such as what we've been experiencing. Now, he didn't get everything right in that talk, certainly, at the same time, but it was interesting, if you go back and watch it, to note some of the things that he warned against that we have seen over the last year. But his main point was, are we ready? He titled his talk, The Next Outbreak, We're Not Ready. Now imagine if you heard that talk all the way back in 2015 and you knew actually that it was going to happen. What would you have done differently? I probably would have bought more stock in mask manufacturers and Lysol wipes. Right? I might have thought differently about the way I spent time with people and my family and the relationships I invested knowing that that might become more challenging in the future ahead. The reality is we didn't know, and oftentimes we weren't quite ready. But today, in our passage, Jesus is going to give us an encouragement about something that is going to happen in the future. And in many ways, he's going to ask us the same question. Are you ready? Are you ready for a massive earth-changing, monumental event. What is it? Well, Jesus is going to point us to this passage that he's going to ask us, are you ready for his return? In the middle of Matthew chapter 24, in verse 36, Jesus begins to make a transition in his teaching. He begins to focus from his instructions to disciples surrounding the events of the destruction of Israel to now beginning to prepare them 
for his coming and arrival. In many ways, Jesus is simply answering the questions that his disciples ask at the beginning that shape what he's been teaching throughout this session. If you remember, we started when the series, all the way back, when we looked at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is walking by the temple and the disciples note to him, the temple in Jerusalem, how incredible and amazing it is. And Jesus says, oh, you think this is amazing? Well, actually, this entire thing is going to be absolutely destroyed. Surprised by this, the disciples respond to him privately on the Mount of Olives, ask him a question and say, well, well tell us then, when will, this thing, will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And so the disciples ask Jesus two questions in light of his prediction of the destruction of the temple. When is this going to take place? And what are going to be the signs then of the coming and the closing of the age? You see, in the Jewish mindset, the destruction of the temple signified that God was going to begin to move anew for his people to bring about the end of the age or the time when God would return and reestablish his covenant people to rid Israel of its enemies and establish God's kingdom fully and finally. And so the disciples naturally link the events around the temple with the return or the advent of the Messiah. And so they ask Jesus about this. Well, Jesus essentially responds to their question by kind of separating out what they're asking. He answers the first question, when will these things happen, in verses 4 through 35, what we've looked over the last few weeks. And he essentially talks about some of the signs that they will see that surround the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He also uses it as an opportunity to instruct his disciples on how to be prepared for what will happen ultimately at the end I told you a couple weeks ago, it's, it's like Jesus has this dual lens look at the events of history. Kind of like how your iPhone can look at one image and then you swipe and all of a sudden it gives you a wider image. Jesus looks at what's going to happen around the destruction of the temple and he prepares his disciples for that event, but also, in only the way Jesus can, prepare all of us for the time when Jesus will ultimately return. But in verse 36, Jesus begins to really focus on the second part of his disciples' questions. What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the close of the age? You see, the Jews believe that when Messiah came, there would be a conflict that would take place in Jerusalem that would leave the the temple desecrated, but that Messiah would ultimately return to restore Jerusalem and establish God's rule for his new kingdom. And so they naturally think, okay, well, if that's what's going to happen, then when are you going to come and complete the process? Well, Jesus begins to point them in a totally different direction in verse 36. Look at it with me. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So you can see the, the change that Jesus has in topic here. He begins to address concerning that day and hour. What is that day and hour? Well, it's the prophesied return of the Messiah, his arrival and coming to deal with God's enemies, to establish God's kingdom, to lead God's people into the new heaven and new earth that you see at the end of Isaiah. So Jesus says concerning the day, what the prophets would call the day of the Lord. That's often the language that was used in the Old Testament to prophesy this day and what God would do there. 
Jesus says that day and that hour, no one knows. And he kind of puts an emphasis on the reality that no one knows. So they're like, okay, well, if the temple's going to be destroyed, then that means you're going to come, right? That's the sign. And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not actually the sign. It's a sign of other things, but the sign of my return, of the arrival, ultimately, of Messiah to establish God's kingdom, no one knows that. And he actually puts some emphasis on it, right? Look at the text. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So Jesus essentially says, nobody knows this day. Nobody knows when I'm going to return. He even says, I don't even know, which is a pretty startling statement if you really stop to think about it for a second. Like part of what we believe as Christians and what Jesus teaches his disciples is that he is God, that he is one with God. But if Jesus is God and I thought God knows everything, then how does Jesus not even know when he's going to come back? Now you need someone way smarter than me to try to explain that to you. In fact, I don't know if anyone can. There's a little bit of a mystery to it. It gets to the very nature of what we as Christians believe about God. That we believe that God is triune. That means that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. And in those three persons, all of the characteristics of those persons contain the attributes and entities of God. Jesus is fully and truly God. That is attested to time and time again in Scripture. And so in no way does Jesus say this less in the reality that he is God, but the Trinity also works in a mystery that we do not understand, that Jesus willingly submits under the plan of the Father for the purposes of what God is doing in the world. And Jesus attests to this too. You look at John 14, 28, and he points and says, the Father is greater than I. That there's some dynamic aspect to the relationship and roles within the Trinity in which Jesus is fully God, but submits himself in a way that he does not know when he's going to return. Like I said, don't expect me to explain it. All that I think we need to remember is both of those things are true. And we hold both of those things as true. But what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding and making clear that when it comes to his return, no one knows when that will ultimately be, except the Father. That's the clear point that he is making. Jesus is removing speculation from the equation. You can't speculate on the day. Nobody knows. And if you encounter anyone that tells you they do know when Jesus is coming back, you should run far, far away. Because if Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back, we probably should be careful of any human that thinks that they know that Jesus is coming back. But Jesus isn't really concerned here with his disciples knowing the timing. In fact, he takes this and he begins to change and refocus. Because what Jesus isn't concerned about is when. What he wants them to be more concerned about is what his coming means. And then how they are to live in light of that. And that's what we want to consider today. In light of Jesus' proclamation that no one knows the day and the hour, which hangs over all the kind of rest of some of what he is going to say, the question is not when, the question is what, and what that day means, and how you and I are to live in light of that. So Jesus points us towards what that day means in verse 37. For he says, For as were the days of Noah, 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, one, two things out of this verse that we need to understand about what Jesus is saying about his return. One, Jesus prophesies his coming. Jesus reminds his disciples that he is going to return, that there is a time where he will return to this earth to finish and consummate what God started in his death and resurrection. Christians, from the very beginning in the ascension of Jesus, have attested to and affirmed and held the belief that Jesus will return bodily to confront evil, judge the world, and establish God's kingdom in a renewed heaven and earth. What Jesus points to, the return of Christ here, is something that is central to the belief of the Christian faith. We see this even in our earliest creeds and statements. For instance, the Apostles' Creed, which was formed as a summary of the teaching of the Bible to help people know what is central to the faith that we ultimately believe, contains the line that he, Jesus, ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come. He will return. And that's what Jesus speaks of. So there is a return of Jesus that is going to come. But what does that day hold? The creed says that he will come to judge the living and the dead. Which is essentially what Jesus says here. Because if you look at the verse half of 37, he explains what his coming means. He says, For as, the days, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what were the days of Noah? What is Jesus referencing there? We find the story of Noah early on in God's story of the world in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And in that story, what we find is that the earth has fallen into utter evil and wickedness. It's terrible. God created the world good. He established human beings as his image bearers to bring his righteousness and justice and goodness to all the world. But humanity turned from God's plan, fell into sin, and instead began to spread sin and destruction and wickedness everywhere they go. And in Genesis chapter 6, it's gotten so bad that God decides to do something about it. So he chooses the man Noah. And Noah, it says, was a righteous man. And God decides that through Noah, he's going to restart everything. That he's going to judge this wickedness and evil, and he's going to restart his creation. So in the story of Noah, God brings a great flood to judge the earth to cleanse it of wickedness, and then to restart things through Noah. Now, ultimately, we know that Noah fails in God's plan, and wickedness continues to spread across the earth. But what Jesus says is, for as were the days of Noah, when God brought judgment and recreation, that's what's coming in my arrival, that I'm going and God is going to fully and finally restore the earth to judge wickedness and evil, and to bring it into the place God has always intended for it. So when Jesus says, for as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, what he is reminding us is that his return brings judgment and the removal of evil from the earth. Now in many ways, that's something that our hearts long for. When we look at the world and we see the pervasiveness of wickedness and evil that exists, not just in small ways, but in massive ways. Our hearts long for that to be removed, for evil to be judged, 
When you consider now that there's over 27 million people, likely more than that, that might be a low estimate, who suffer from human slavery and trafficking currently around the world, our hearts cry, God, judge evil. When we read stories of genocide and abuse, wars and conflicts, where humanity is seen at its worst, we cry out, God, judge evil. And what Jesus promises is that he is going to return to deal with the evil and wickedness that is pervasive in our world. But what Jesus warns us is that when he comes, and when that happens, it's going to feel very sudden for a lot of people, just like it was in the days of Noah. That's why in verse 38 it says, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. See, what, God, what Jesus reminds us here is that when he returns to judge evil, that for many it will feel sudden. In the days of Noah, they were eating, they were living life, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were doing the things that we are meant to do. And then suddenly God brought his judgment and they were not prepared for it. They were not ready. And what Jesus says is when I return, when I bring God's final judgment, the world will not be prepared. And when I come, it will bring division. That's what he points to in verse 40 when he says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. You see, the judgment that Jesus will bring in his return will ultimately divide the wicked from the righteous. From those who are in Christ and from those who are not. Oftentimes this imagery has been used to discuss in the study of future things the issue of the rapture, but I don't think that's what Jesus, or the rapture. Watch too much Jurassic Park, sorry, rapture. But I don't think that's what Jesus is pointing to here. I think there's other texts that deal with that reality. What Jesus is pointing to here is that in his sudden arrival and judgment, there is division that will separate those who will experience God's judgment and those who will experience God's reward. Note, oftentimes we think the one who will be taken is the one who's taken into judgment. You see that earlier in the language when Jesus refers that the flood swept them all away. And then the other ones are left to continue living. What Jesus is pointing to is that in his return, there is a judgment coming that will remove wickedness and that are those that are connected with wickedness. This is a staunch and challenging reality of Jesus' return. It's what Jesus wants them to be reminded of. That the what of Jesus' return is a removal of evil. And because it's a removal of evil, it brings judgment on those who perpetuate evil. And if that is what Jesus' return brings, then how are you and I to live in light of the unknown but imminent return of Jesus? If we don't know when, but we know what, then how are you and I called to live in light of that? 
Well, Jesus will essentially point his followers to two things to consider in how we live in light of the unknowable yet imminent return of Christ. You see the first one come right away in the text in verse 42. He says, therefore, right, so because I'm coming back and I'm bringing judgment and you don't know when that's happening, because of all that, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus' command here is clear in light of his return. It is to stay awake. It is to be alert. You see, you and I, we must be prepared for the return of Christ. Why? Jesus makes it clear. Because you don't know when it's coming. You don't know when his return will be. Have you caught that theme yet? You don't know. And because you don't know, you need to be alert. And Jesus uses this imagery of, if you knew when the burglar would come, then you'd probably live differently. But because you don't know, you live a certain way. Right? Imagine it like this. Imagine if every time um, someone was going to try to break into your house, you knew that you would get a heads up. Like, you'd get a phone call earlier in the day, and they'd be like, hey, listen, somebody's going to break into your house. And you knew, no matter what, that anytime someone was going to try to break into your house, you would get a heads up on it. It'd probably change the way you lived a little bit, wouldn't it? Like, you probably wouldn't be so concerned about security or the alarm system you have or locking your doors because you just knew, like, hey, I'm going to get a heads up, and I'm just going to call the police. I'm going to be like, hey, there's somebody coming to my house at 7 o'clock. Can you, like, be here and just deal with it? Or, like, if you knew what was going to happen you'd live differently. But it's because you don't know. It's precisely because you don't know if there's ever going to be a thief to come in and break into your house, which is why we live the way we do, which is why we have the alarm system that we have, or why we lock our doors, or why we're careful about what lights we leave on or don't leave on so we can make people think we're at home, but we're not at home, but everybody knows we're not at home anyways, right? (laughs) But because we don't know, well, that affects the way we live. And so Jesus is essentially reminding His followers, you don't know. There's no heads up coming on when I'm going to return. So because of that, you need to change and think about how you're living. You need to be prepared. See, in Jesus' day, the thief breaking in was a real reality for these people that could alter their life. There was no alarm system. There weren't no door locks like we have. And if a thief comes in and steals your flock, that hurts your livelihood. If they come in and steal your tools, that hurts your ability to provide for your family. So Jesus is like, the same way you're so diligent in your lives to be careful about that, we need to be careful and be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Are you ready? See, I think when we talk about the return of Jesus, we can often move in two directions. We can either move towards obsession or we can move towards apathy. This is generally what happens when we think about it. We either can come to the point where we're like over-obsessed with the return of Jesus. We're like calculating the date. We have our charts out. We've got it all mapped out and figured out when's this going to happen. Or we consider it so much that it's going to happen that we almost essentially throw caution to the wind in the way in which we live. I remember several years ago as a pastor talking with a woman who was just in some ways, so concerned about the return of Christ that she felt like, why why does it even matter? I don't need to save money. 
Jesus is going to come back. Who cares what I do? Jesus is going to return. And it was almost a lack of preparation because it was like, hey, I already know this is going to happen tomorrow or next week or in my lifetime. And so you fail to prepare because you think you know. But the other way sometimes we go when it comes to return to life is we move towards apathy. Because we don't know, who cares? Who cares how I live? Who cares what I do? Why does it matter? So we just kind of live how we want to live. We kind of do our thing. But what Jesus is saying is in response to my coming and the fact that you don't know, you cannot move towards either of those extremes. Right? Go back to the metaphor of the thief. You can either be so concerned about the thief that you're like obsessive compulsive about everything you do to protect anyone from ever coming into your house. Where you literally don't leave because you're afraid if I leave, something might happen. Somebody might break in. Or you can move to the other way where you're like, who cares? I don't need to lock my door. I don't need to consider or think about that. Jesus is saying, don't move to either of those extremes when it comes to my return. Don't become so concerned that you fail to do what I've called you to do. Don't become so apathetic that you just keep living however you want. No, if I'm coming and my return means judgment, then you need to be prepared. Some of you this morning need reminded that Jesus is coming and you need to be prepared for that. You need to do business with God because he is coming to judge. You've fallen into spiritual apathy You're asleep at the wheel, just going through the motions of life, doing whatever you need to do. And Jesus is coming and saying, no, wake up. I'm coming. Be prepared. Make sure you've done your business with God. Are you prepared for his return? Where is your faith today? Where is your life? Are you living in light of what he says will happen? There's another way that you and I are called to live in light of the unknowable but imminent return of Christ. Look at verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then Jesus goes on to share this interesting parable. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus not only says that we need to be prepared for his return, but we need to be faithful as we wait for it. He essentially draws this parable between two servants who are experiencing a delay of the return of their master. The first servant is held up as an example for us. He's called the faithful and wise servant. He's entrusted, both as both servants are, with the care of his master's household, and he oversees all of the other servants, to give them their food, to provide for them. He's entrusted with the work of the house while his master is gone. 
He's a faithful and wise servant. He kind of reminds me of Mr. Carson in Downton Abbey. Are there any Downton Abbey fans? Like, Mr. Carson's like the staunch butler that like holds the house together and oversees the staff and makes sure everything happens in the Grantham's household, right? That, that's kind of the picture that I have here when Jesus talks about. This is a wise and faithful steward. He's dependable. He's about the business of the house. He makes sure those under his care are provided for. He does what he is supposed to do. And so when the master shows up, this servant receives a reward. Verse 46 says, blessed is that servant. There's a pronunciation of favor, of God's favor on this servant. Why? Because his master finds him doing what he's supposed to be doing when he comes. And not only that, he will set him over all his possessions. This is a faithful servant, and when the master comes, he finds him in his faithfulness. And because of that, he pronounces favor and blessing and gives him even more responsibility. What Jesus is reminding us is that that's what we're called to be, faithful and wise servants. And he reminds us that by contrasting the faithful and wise servant with the wicked servant. The wicked servant experiences the same delay, but he responds differently. The wicked servant doesn't care for those under him. In fact, he beats them. He doesn't provide what they need, but instead self-indulges himself to the point where he's numbered with the drunkards and brings shame upon the household. In light of his master's delay, this servant doesn't turn to selflessness, but instead turns to selfishness and pursues his own desires at the expense of others around him and even his own master's household. And what's his reasons for doing this? Well, it says in verse 48, he says to himself, my master's delayed. He's not coming back. And so I can just live however it wants, however I want. What does it matter? Oftentimes when it comes to the return of Jesus, we can fall into this trap where we begin to think, ah, it's been 2,000 years. Maybe Jesus isn't coming back. I'll just do me. I'll just worry about me. But look what happens when the master does return. For the first servant, the return of the master brings reward. For the second servant, the return of the master brings judgment. In verse 51, the master will come on a day when he doesn't expect, and what will he do? He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Strong words. this servant experiences dismemberment. He's numbered with the hypocrites, which in Matthew's gospel is one of the worst things you could be because you stand under God's curse. In fact, even just a chapter before, Jesus warned the Pharisees by saying, woe, you hypocrites, God's condemnation is on you. And that in that, he experiences the ultimate judgment where Jesus uses this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, to remind of the eternal conscious torment that comes from those that ultimately reject God. R.T. France says that Jesus uses this language to shock the hearer into response. He's not messing around here. He's not just giving us a nice picture for us to consider. No, Jesus is dealing 
with eternal realities and eternal consequences based on how we respond to the delay of his return. Whether we will receive him and trust in him through that time or whether we will reject him. And Jesus knows based on how we respond, where our faith and actions lie, determines what we receive when he returns, whether we receive reward or judgment. Because that is what his return brings. It will show whether we have been about his business or whether we will be about our own. And depending on where we're at, we will receive accordingly when he shows up. Right? You can think of it maybe another way. Think of it uh, like my... Like imagine with me for a minute that I, I was going to go run an errand and I told my kids, hey, listen, I'm going to go run an errand. I'm going to be out for a little bit while I'm gone. I want you to clean your room. And then I leave, go to the store, go do what I have. Maybe just have some alone time away from my kids. Every parent craves that, right? And at some point, I come back to my house. And what I find is that, that one of my sons took my words seriously. He went in. He cleaned his room. He did what he was supposed to do. But my other son, he didn't. He thought to himself, Eh, it's not a big deal. I'll have time. I'll keep playing my video game. When dad gets back, I'll make sure I'll have enough time before dad returns. Well, depending on how they responded to my delay determines how I am responding to each of them. For the one who obeyed my instructions, there's reward. Enter in to an eternity of screen time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. <laughs> but for the other, what comes? Consequences. Punishment for disobedience, for failing to obey what I had called you to do. Right? That's what Jesus is essentially saying. Listen, just because I'm delayed, at some point I'm going to return. And how you respond to my delay, whether you are about the things that I am about, or whether you continue to live the way you think or how you want in your own desire and flesh will determine what happens when I show up, whether there is reward or whether there is judgment. And so Jesus reminds us that you and I are called to be faithful while he's gone. We're called to faithful living, to be about the business that God has called us to be about, his kingdom, his mission, his purposes. Because what we do in light of the return of Christ shows where our ultimate faith and trust is. And so what does it mean to be faithful? Well, it just means live your life in what God has given to you in light of his kingdom. Obey his word. Follow what he has called you to follow. Trust in him. I love the word. Someone once asked the great reformer Martin Luther they asked him, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And Martin Luther famously responded, well, I'd plant a tree today. And I always love that response because in some ways, Luther got to the heart of what it means to be prepared and to be faithful. It's not to be so obsessed with what's to come that you ignore the responsibility that God has given you today. It's not to be so apathetic that you fail to actually care for what God has given you to care for and live in light of what he has said. 
To be faithful is to be faithful with what God has for you now. To live out his kingdom in your job, in your family. To be faithful with what he has entrusted you. From your finances, to your physical body, to everything. Be faithful with that now in light of his return. So that when he shows up, you can say, God, I've been about your business. I've been doing what you've called me to do. That's why I love Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. After he elaborates on the resurrection, encourages us to say, be, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You and I are to be about God's business. That's how we live in light of his return. And so all of this leads us back to that one big question that Jesus has for us. Are you, are you ready? If the judge of the world is going to return, are you ready for it? Are you looking for it? Are you awake? Are you alert? Are you about God's business? Do you know what that day will bring for you, whether it will bring reward or whether it will bring judgment? Because God is returning to judge. Several years ago, my wife and I were having uh, dinner with a woman, and she, uh, over the course of the dinner, was recounting a, an event in her life where... Uh, she had gotten pulled over and gotten in some trouble for driving with a suspended license. And um, she was kind of recounting the story about how this happened. And because of that, it was determined that she needed to go to court and stand before the judge. And he was going to determine what her consequence ultimately uh, would be for her kind of continued infractions in regards to driving. And when we sat there at dinner and she recounted the story to us, she talked about how it was appointed for her to go to a day where she would stand in court and then the judge would come in to determine ultimately what her consequences would be. And she talked about as that day approached and as the day came where she stood in court not knowing what ultimately was going to come, jail was on the line. It could have been a potential for her, fines. She wasn't sure. But she said, when I stood in that courtroom, there was only one thing that consumed my mind, and that was what the judge thought. There were no excuses. There was nothing I could do. It was only up to his decision. And she recounted to me in that moment just how in there was that trepidation of what will the verdict be? Nothing else mattered in that moment except what the judge thought and what his determination could be. Friends, one day you and I are going to have to stand before the judge of the world. Jesus Christ, who will return to judge the living and the dead. And the only thing that will matter in that moment is what he thinks. Your good actions won't matter. All the things you think you've done in your life to somehow earn his favor, they won't matter. There won't be anything left to do. All that will matter is his verdict. But what if you could know what that verdict was going to be ahead of time? 
What if you could know that the day you stand before the judge of the world, you know that he would judge you in favor and offer you reward and not condemnation? What if the day of Christ's return could bring you hope, not fear? Friends, that's exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. Because in the gospel, God declares that you and I can be found justified and righteous. Not because of our work, not but because what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. You and, I deter- you and I deserve a guilty verdict. You and I deserve separation. You and I, because of our sinfulness and our wickedness, deserve to be cast out among the hypocrites to experience a life of eternal conscious torment separated from God because of our sin. But the gospel declares that Jesus loved us in our sin enough to come and pay that penalty on our behalf to do what we couldn't do so that God could declare us justified and that he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death so we could know in his return we will experience reward. That's why Paul would write to the Romans in Romans chapter 3 and he would remind us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one of us in our own strength, our own righteousness that can stand before the righteous judge And be declared innocent apart from Christ. But then he goes on to say, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, you can know the verdict ahead of time. You can know that when you put your faith in Jesus, that God declares you righteous and justified, that you will receive reward and not condemnation. And you can see the day of Christ's return as a day of hope where God will rid the world of evil, but where you will get to experience eternal life. One of my favorite reminders of this comes from an old catechism in the church called the Heidelberg Catechism. And they reflect on the truth of Jesus' return. It's a series of questions and answers. And in the 52nd question, they ask, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? How does this truth comfort you? How does it matter for your life today? And this is the answer given, that in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Can someone in the church say amen? Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. See, if you are in Christ, that's what awaits you. Joy. Life. Because the righteous judge has declared you righteous in his son and removed the whole curse from you. But the question that we still linger over and that I want to conclude our time this morning with is, are you ready? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? trusted in his righteousness to cover your sin? Have you done business with God? Are you spiritually apathetic, wandering, asleep? God wants to invite you this morning 
to put your faith in him. Or maybe you have done that, but you're not living in light of Christ's return. You're not about God's business in your life. You're about your own business. And you just see these repeated sins, these repeated things where you've turned from God's way. Jesus wants to remind you, are you ready? And so I thought just this morning, we take a moment to just do some business with God. So I just want to invite you where you're at to just close your eyes, bow your head. It's not a weird moment. It's just for you to be able to kind of not be distracted and just kind of focus on the Lord. We're just going to have a couple moments of silence where I want you to just be real with God. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, maybe that's a time to say, Jesus, I trust in you as my Savior and Lord. Maybe if there's sin that the Lord brings to your heart, you use that as a time to repent and turn, to confess it to him. Maybe if you've been spiritually asleep and you hear the call to awake, you just say, God, help me to wake up to be about your business. Just for a minute of silence, I just want you to have a minute with your eyes closed, undistracted, to just do some business with the Lord. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.